You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley and Darcy Fournier. Today's guest is a USA Today best-selling author who writes romantic mountain stories set in the 1800s frontier and woven with the truth of God's love. Her southern roots run deep and she lives in South Carolina with her husband and children. Misty M. Beller, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Yay, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We are so glad to have you back. I'm looking forward to talking about this book. But to start off with fall blustering in on us, I'm wondering what kind of fun family traditions you do with your family this time of year. Oh, that's a great question. We don't have any hard and fast traditions, although my family is very strong in traditions, so it's a surprise that we don't have any fall ones, but mostly because we have several birthdays in September. But there is one thing that we've started doing the last few years by accident And it doesn't really feel like fall, but we slip away to Myrtle Beach, usually the first weekend or the first week in October for a few days. And that's where we are right now, actually. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Now, growing up, I didn't actually go to the beach a lot in the summer. I feel like it was usually either in the springtime before the water really warmed up or in the autumn. That didn't really stop me from enjoying it. Yeah, the kids really... They don't seem to mind the cooler water, and there's not as much traffic here and not as many people to trip over, and it's just a nice little quick getaway before the cold weather really starts. We do oftentimes try to do a long weekend in the mountains, too, in the fall before it gets really cold, so we haven't planned that yet, but it's coming. It'll be a last-minute thing. Yeah, got to catch some of those colorful leaves. Yes, yes, exactly. How fun. Right before the snow falls, too. The snow gets here in the mountains up in the Pacific Northwest. And it's like you, unless you have chains and, you know, you are ready to go, you don't go in the mountains. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. It's very serious snowfall up there. Yep. We're just, oh, we're just going to the pumpkin patch. That's what my family's doing this weekend. And I really love when... We take the time to have those family times, especially with school just starting. And I know families just get so busy. So it's nice once kids have gotten to the rhythm of school and they're used to getting up early and they've made new friends or they are getting to know new teachers and the demands of grades and the expectations and the social pressures that they have to go through. And then you get to just take them out for a weekend and have a break and just be a family. And I just, I think that's one thing that's so wonderful about our American holiday seasons is that, yes, some stores do like to turn that into a (laughs) like shopping fest, but really it's just a beautiful opportunity to check in with your family and have that break. Yeah, that's so true. You're exactly right. It's just recentering to put all the other stuff aside and just have fun together. And you have a few children. You're a full-time author and you do a lot of your own marketing. So how do you juggle the writing and family life? That's a really good question. I don't have a really good answer other than just, it's just a constant juggle. We do have five kiddos. Our youngest is 
11 months right now. She'll turn a year old in November. Um, and our oldest is 15. She's just started driving. So we've got a pretty big age span. But And we homeschool as well. And then I write full time. But I'm blessed that I can write at home. And I can do what I need to do in between all the other things. And the kids all have their schedules. And they're, they really pitch in. I'm definitely... I'm not Susie Homemaker. I wish I was. But the kids are great at picking up responsibility. My oldest, she does a lot of the just overseeing the younger kids and what they're supposed to do. And really, my two oldest help a lot with the younger kids. So we just all pitch in together. (laughs) It works, but every day is a different day. Keeps us on our toes and keeps life exciting. I think that's probably a really good experience for your kids because life can be, once you grow up, it's a lot. And so they get to practice safely at home, learning how to pitch in. So that's really cool. Now, the last time you were on the show, I think you'd actually just found out that you were having another child. So that was really exciting. We also talked about Courage in the Mountain Wilderness, book four, in your independently published series, Call of the Rockies. But today we're chatting about your latest release with Bethany House. So I'm wondering, as a hybrid author, so an author who publishes independently and also with a publishing house, Have you ever mixed like your books or characters or maybe the setting or events like from one story that you're working on into another story? Oh, that's a great question. I have wanted to. I've tried to. But what stops me every time is timelines because all of my books are set in the 1800s. But there's a wide range. I think my earliest book is actually book one in this series, A Warrior's Heart. It's set in 1815. And then my latest book is in my mountain series, which goes all the way up to 1880. And that's the latest point that I write because that's when things started really modernizing. But I... Uh, Each series is at least 10 years apart from any other series around it. That's not been intentional, but every time I've tried to bring in characters from a different series, that's that's been my challenge. But I'm planning to. I'm working it into the plans to to connect some characters between series, hopefully between my Bethany House books and my indie books, because I just think that's fun. I love it when some of my favorite authors, you have those little Easter egg surprises of seeing a character from a totally different series. Susan May Warren is one of my favorite authors who does that a lot. Look for that in the future. That will be cool. I guess if they're far apart, you might work in the children of some of the couples from one series. If That can get really complicated, though, if you start thinking about <laughs> all the math you got to do. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's so true. I actually sat down and did that math because I was trying to have the daughter of the hero and heroine from A Warrior's Heart, book one in this series, was trying to have their daughter be grown up and be a, the heroine in the indie series I'm writing right now. And I thought I had the timing worked out. And then I realized, no, she's still going to be too young. I have to save that for another one. No. <laughs> oh, another book, another series. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, I'm going to have to write write some more. Yay. Now that you've <laughs> done the math and everything, you, you might as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Went through all that work. And you know now like where th- where that all needs to be. So I really love that when an author is able to bring one series and connect the story worlds of two separate series. It's just so much fun, especially when you get to the end of a really great book. You're like, oh, this is such a beautiful story. And then you're like, oh, I don't get to like 
this story world's over and I don't get to be with this character anymore. So that's something I love about series is that it's like you get to see an old friend when you yes. see those those characters from previous works. So very fun. Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Oh, that's a great question. I was trying to think of what things I haven't shared in other interviews that's unusual. And I guess one thing I haven't really talked about much is the condition I was in when I was writing this book. We grow through hard times. I was expecting our youngest, our little Leah, when I was writing this book, and I was on the tail end of the pregnancy, and I was pushing so hard to get this book done before I had her. But she was our fifth baby, and the pregnancy was so hard. I was pretty sick through most of it. So as you can imagine, it was it was really hard to be creative and to write every day. And this book took me much longer than I had planned. And it was just a really hard book to write. Not because of the book. I loved the characters. I loved Damien and Charlotte. I loved Damien and Charlotte. And I just really loved the storyline. And it was fun and exciting. And But just mentally and physically, I was exhausted. And I have found that in those books that are the hardest, the times that I have to push the most to get the words out and to get the story on paper, those can sometimes be maybe the best books or the books that I hear the most from readers that that the book was a blessing to them or there was something in the book that really spoke to them. So I'm praying that's the case with this one as well. I'm praying that God uses the struggle not just to grow me, which he certainly did, but also to help others uh, to use something in the storyline or maybe something the character said to reach out and bless someone else. He's good about doing things like that. He is. He really is. He's very efficient. He not only <laughs> teaches me, but he, he uses it in so many ways. It's great. It really makes this feel worthwhile, this process. Yes. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking about the story in this book, A Daughter's Courage. This is book three in the Brides of Lawrence series. After accidentally destroying the intricate chalice her people have treasured for over a hundred years, Charlotte Durand heads out in search of a skilled artisan who can repair the damage. What she expected to be a two-day trek becomes much more daunting when a treacherous snowstorm sets in. The last thing Damien Lavette needs in the middle of a mountain blizzard is to tend another person, but he can't leave behind the mysterious woman he found half-frozen at the edge of a mountain lake. As they battle both the elements and each other, Charlia and Damien must work together to survive the peril of the mountains, or it could be the downfall of them both. Wow. Surviving a blizzard in the mountains? Ooh, I've got chills just thinking about that. <laughs> And what kind of challenges do Damien and Charlotte face along with the blizzard? And how do they bring them, how do these challenges bring them together? So many challenges. <laughs> I love writing stories, obviously set in the mountains. That's really where my heart is. But also stories set in winter. One, because there are so many challenges that are just innate to to traveling in that season, especially up in the Canadian Rockies, which is where this series is set. But also 
I think one of the reasons I love writing adventurous books, books where the characters do face a lot of physical challenges, is because it really strips away the the niceties in life and you come down to the core of survival and you really discover what's truly important to that character and how they react when the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And I just really fell in love with Damien and Charlotte. Damien especially. He was a really fun hero. He's, I won't say he's a bad boy type because he really wasn't. He was really quiet and he's actually a twin. His twin sister was his best friend, was really his heart. Their parents died when they were teenagers. And so the two of them just, they lived in a little village in New France, which is what we call Canada now. And they just worked together to earn what they needed for food. And they had the house that their parents had lived in. But Michelle, his sister, was was really his heartbeat. He called her their better half. And when she died... About a year before the story started, Damien just really went through some deep depression. He ended up selling their home and heading west into what they called Rupert's Land, which was Alberta, British Columbia kind of area. And he joined on with a trapping group and stayed with them for a few months. And then he set out on his own. He was just really just done with life. He lost his best friend, his better half, and was in one of his darkest times. And that's when he met Charlotte. (laughs) I won't give any spoilers. That's all kind of backstory. But those challenges that he faced before the story even started really made him even more sensitive to the challenges that Charlotte faced coming into the story, which I won't go into all that because that kind of gives some spoilers. But he has to step outside of himself and help her through this mountain wilderness, especially as there's a blizzard. Charlotte had lived in Laurent most or all of her life, actually, which Laurent, if readers don't know, is a secret village hidden in the Alberta mountains, the Canadian Rockies, a village that had been set apart for about a hundred years. They had no contact with the outside world except for trading with a couple of the local Diné tribes. And In our previous two books in the series, they're having their first contact with actually the heroes in each of those books. So they've started to do some trading with a a fort a few days away, but Charlotte had never left the village and the surrounding area. So this was her first trek out by herself, and she had underestimated the, the challenges of traveling in the mountains in early winter. So Damien's really able to step in with his skills and keep her safe and protect her especially when they come upon a, a grizzly who was hibernating. Oh, <laughs> bad idea. Oh, there's some excitement. Yeah, that one was a fun surprise. And so Charlotte comes from this really sheltered world, even though it, she grew up in the Canadian Rockies. So she was very sheltered. She was the youngest in their family of three siblings, and she was the baby of the family. And so you got her against Damien, who's, he's just really almost done with life. He doesn't really have, he never had much fear to begin with. He was all boy growing up, but in some ways he would be okay with moving on. So he faces the grizzly and she's saying, run, run. And he's just thinking, you know what? I'll get in the way. I'll be the distraction. I can maybe even take him down and have this fur to sell. Or if not, okay, I saved her and, and I'll go meet Michelle. <laughs> but. 
He doesn't have anything to lose, which makes him very capable of doing all sorts of things. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really the situation he's in, in the first part of the story. And then as he, as his protective instincts really step in, he realizes that, you know what, if he's not there, Charlotte's going to be in a pretty tight spot. So suddenly he does have something to lose if something happens to him. Yeah, sounds intense. And the thing about survival situations in books, they can be intense. So have you got like a light or funny moment with the two main characters that you could share to give us a hint of what else may be going on? Oh, that's a good question. I think I was trying to think of some humorous moments. There are some in the book. It's just been so long since I wrote the book. I couldn't get any to come to mind right away. But one of the things I loved about Damien is his softer side, which he keeps very hidden, but he's actually an artist. And he had stopped doing his art after Michelle, his sister, died. But he's really just very much a self-taught, very talented at sketching and paint as well. And so as he's traveling with Charlotte, he picks up his sketchbook again, starts to sketch some things One of the things that he sketches is beaver that he met as he was trapping. The beaver had actually been caught by one of his traps and then chewed its way out of the trap. And when Damien came along the sprung trap that was empty, the beaver's standing there to the side, giving him a look like, I showed you. (laughs) So Damien actually draws that picture and and gives it to the heroine. And he also, there's a few other really sweet pictures that he draws for her as well. And one of my other favorite characters in the book is Gulliver, the mule, Damien's mule that he rides. Gulliver is just really a sweetie pie. And of course, he gets to know the heroine before Damien does. And she has a fun little fun friendship with the mule. Oh, that's fun. My sister actually volunteers at a local rescue farm for horses. And there's a little white donkey there. And he is the stubbornest thing. If he doesn't want to move, (laughs) you're going to have to haul him with all your might across the pasture. But he is really sweet and he just, he loves grooming. He loves to have his little ears scratched. Little ears, they are long ears. And so I'm picturing Gulliver as like this affectionate little donkey that my sister knows. So I like it. It's always neat when you have animals as part of the story. It definitely sounds like you have a lot of experience with animals. But did you explore anything new as a writer while working on A Daughter's Courage? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if there's anything like a new technique or anything that I explored, but I definitely did do more research into French Canada, which is New France, and really got to know some of the the forts there and just the environment that would have been there in the early 1800s. Um, I think this book, if I'm not mistaken, was set in 1818. So it's still very early 1800s, not long after the War of 1812. There was a lot of unrest, but it was just really neat kind of digging into that history a little more and just learning a lot of French customs and also learning a bit more about art during that time period and etchings, which plays into the storyline later in the story. So I won't say anything more about that. But I think just the research was fun. So many of the books that I write are set in the American Rockies. And so I'm very familiar with the American Rockies, especially in the Montana and Wyoming territories. But so it's fun when I get to broaden, stretch my wings into other areas and other cultures and whatnot. Absolutely. And like you say, it's the American Rockies we're very familiar with. And 
in the aspect of it's the mountains, it's cold, it's dangerous, that that's going to carry up into Canada too, probably accentuated because it's further north. But yeah, they were settled by people more of French heritage. So that's going to be an entirely different culture. I bet that was cool exploring that. Yeah, it really was. It was neat. I got to talk to some people who live up in Canada and are very steeped in the history of that area. And it was just, to me, fascinating. I love history. I love to visit in person, but just hear their stories as well. So, Yeah. Well, what kind of writerly things are you doing in the future? Books coming out? Well, so A Daughter's Courage, of course, comes out at the beginning of November. And then my next series with Bethany House, book one releases in May. And guys, I am so excited about this series. I am just writing book two right now. But book one, the series is called Sisters in the Rockies. And it's about four sisters who go west in 1837. And they are, their father's dying wish was for them to go find this Pegan Blackfoot woman who had helped him when he was traveling there a couple decades before. And so they go west during the Rocky Mountain Rendezvous of 1837, and they have no idea what they're in for. <laughs> because That just was a sensible way for them to travel with the supply wagons, but they just didn't expect to come upon this miles and miles of lodges and teepees and just men, trappers and Indians and just miles of men. (laughs) It was really quite a sight. And even though they're pretty capable, the four of them, and they knew they were going into the wild unknown. So they, their father had taught them, of course, a lot of things about safety and how to shoot and just how to interact with, with different cultures. But And they had touched up their skills before they went west, but they quickly realized that they were maybe in a little over their heads. So, of course, our hero steps in and acts as their guide to in their search. And we learn a lot about the rendezvous event that would happen in July, where all of the trappers and a lot of the tribes would get together and meet supply wagons that came west. And they would trade their furs for supplies and hear all the news from back east. And that was just a really neat experience. This series is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, that does sound fun. Yeah, it does. And I love that the setting also includes the this the rendezvous because I personally I've never heard of it and I'm a pretty big fan of like historical fiction and you know like western and historical TV shows and movies. So that sounds really interesting. Well, for our listeners, Misty has been so gracious to offer a copy of A Daughter's Courage to enter to win. You could just go to our website and click on the giveaways page, our website, historicalbookworm.com. You'll also find a link for the giveaway in our show notes. And Misty, how can our listeners connect with you? Oh, I love to connect with readers. One of my favorite ways is my newsletter. And when readers sign up for my newsletter, I actually give away an ebook of book one in my Wyoming Mountain Tales series, which is a Pony Express romance. So you can go to my website, mistymbeller.com, and you'll see the link at the top to get your free book and stay up to date on all the news with my newsletter. And that's my favorite way. I'm not as active on social media as I'd like to be, but that's I'm getting better there. Especially as the baby gets older, I have a few extra minutes to connect with readers on social media as well. So you can find me on Facebook. My author page is Misty Embeller Author and on Instagram as well. Well, 
Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a delight just chatting with you and hearing about your amazing stories. Thank you. This has been an honor to connect with your readers and also just fun. You ladies are fun. Now for a pinch of the past. With autumn finally arriving for even the southern United States, my head is full of visions of apple orchards and apple dishes. So for today's Pinch of the Past, we are looking at the history of the man who made apples an American thing, the man best known as Johnny Appleseed. Oh, see, we just brought out, we're bringing out our books about Johnny Appleseed now in second grade. So this should be fun. Oh, that's fun. You'll have to fact check me as I go along and, and make sure that my sources were <laughs> accurate. <laughs> John Chapman was born in Leominster, Massachusetts on September 26, 1774, so that's just two years before the American Revolution began. Little is known about his childhood. His father fought in the Revolution. Um, his mother died when he was about two, and his father remarried just a few years later. And then when John was 18, he and his 11-year-old half-brother, Nathaniel, headed west into Pennsylvania. It was That was the western wilderness then. It was just mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. And they apparently lived a nomadic lifestyle. Sometime around 1800 or maybe a little earlier, John apprenticed under an orchardist named Mr. Crawford, where he discovered his love for apple trees. John was in his mid-20s when he embarked on his business of starting apple nurseries. He acquired apple seeds for free from cider mills, so he didn't have a whole lot of overhead, and headed west. Hmm. Yeah. So he's kind of like one of the first pioneers. He really was. While legend paints Johnny Appleseed as a wandering pauper wearing a coffee sack for a shirt and planting apple seeds in any likely clearing, John Chapman was actually a shrewd businessman. In the late 1700s and early 1800s, private companies and speculators bought up these huge tracts of land in what was called the Northwest Territories. So this would be like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and those, those states. And in order to encourage settling, in 1792, the Ohio Company of Associates gave 100 acres to anyone who could establish a permanent homestead. Part of the deal involved planting a 50-acre apple orchard on each homestead. Okay. So we're seeing a need here, and he's going to come mm -hmm. fill it. He would travel into these territories, scout out good places for his apple nurseries, and he would buy the land, fence it with fallen logs and bushes and carefully plant his apple seeds. And then he would kind of rotate through his um, areas and return to these nurseries, tend the trees and sell the saplings to settlers or trade. Okay. Now, something I heard and might be a myth, but I heard that his apples weren't like the juicy, sweet, like gala apples. I heard that they were tart apples. Um, they were small and they were actually used in distilleries for producing hard cider or Applejack, which is a kind of brandy. Did you hear anything about yes. that? Yes. Actually, because of his uh, religious beliefs, he didn't practice grafting trees, um, he, believing it was harmful for the plants. Aww. And so because the apple seeds are so genetically unpredictable, most of his trees, yeah, basically wild apples. Actually, Henry David Thoreau said that apples grown from seed are sour enough to set a squirrel's teeth on edge and make a jay scream. Oh, wow. Yes. So, yeah, the fruit was mostly, it was just milled for the juice and brewed into hard cider. And when you think about that on the frontier, you know, they're not going to have access to clean water all the time and that coffee and tea are going to be hard to come by. Hard cider makes a lot of sense. It wasn't going to make them sick and, mm -hmm. and it kept pretty well. Yeah, I know. Um, I spoke with an old gentleman years ago 
well, actually, I wasn't speaking with him. I was little and we were in church and he was talking about how young he was when he was introduced to alcohol. And he said, that's, I, I don't even know what nationality he was, but he said, well, in the old country, you know, we didn't always have good water, but we knew that, you know, the alcohol, you put a little alcohol in your water and you wouldn't get sick. Exactly. So... Yeah, they actually used it, not just, you know, irresponsibly, so to speak. Exactly. And it wouldn't have been nearly as concentrated as most of the Mm. alcohol that's consumed today. And like you say, they may have watered it down. It may have been, you know, they cut it half with water because they knew that would purify the water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John was a devout follower of the Swedenborgian doctrine of Christianity, which, which was from Sweden, but the man's name was Swedenborg. The first published writing about him was actually in an article by the Church of New Jerusalem in Manchester, England in 1817. It described him as a missionary for their church who traveled the wilderness planting apple seeds. John always carried a Bible and literature of his church, and he loved discussing and arguing for his faith. Oh, wow. He sounds like a Baptist. (laughs) I can say that. I'm a Baptist. You can say that. It's fair. I say that with the utmost love. Yes, yes. They say that he was just friendly, but he was he was very devoted to his religion, and he just he loved talking about it. He was well known during his life for his peculiar shabby clothing and his habit of traveling barefoot, even in snow. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. He often preferred sleeping in the woods, even when neighborly settlers would have offered a night's shelter unless unless he really needed shelter. he was he was going to be in the woods with a small campfire at his feet. And he wasn't without means, as his nurses could support him, but he chose to live simply. He believed that um, the privations he endured in this life were just, you know, preparing him for for the next life, and, and he was okay with it. He didn't, like, make a martyr of himself. That was just the way he lived. He would trade apple trees for secondhand clothing, but if he met someone who he thought needed it more, he'd just give it away and be back in what he was wearing before. He was strictly kind to animals, even pulling his own handcart rather than owning a beast of burden to pull it for him. It's said that he didn't even swat mosquitoes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder. I know, right? It's like, I'm, I'm all for being kind to animals, but that might be taking it a bit far. Rosella Rice wrote in her history of Ashland County, Ohio, that John wore a cooking pot as a hat so that his headgear served two purposes. Historians today find this doubtful because cooking pots are made of such heavy tin in the early 1800s. Um, Mm -hmm. But Rosella Rice had met John at some point in his later later years. So maybe it was accurate. Maybe not. Yeah. I wonder how old she was when she met him. Yeah. I just imagine maybe he put the pot on his head being the kind of like kind person that he was, you know, and interacting with a child. I don't know. That's all speculation. Don't quote me on that. Right. But you don't know. I mean, they say kids loved him. So you could totally see him, you know, being like, of course I don't wear a hat. I just wear my cooking pot, you know, and just play him with them. Yeah. And sometimes I know that hats doubled as sort of drinking vessels for individuals who were out in the wilderness. Absolutely. John was well-liked by everyone as a newsbringer and friend, eventually picking up the nickname Johnny Appleseed. He traveled for 50 years total until 1842 when he moved in with his brother Nathaniel's family who had settled in Ohio. It was three years later, while visiting a friend in Indiana, he died of pneumonia on March 18, 1845. They say it was the only time he'd been sick in his adult life. He left a valuable estate of 1,200 acres of nurseries in Ohio and Indiana to his sister, Persis. 
And in spite of his planting only cider apples, we may actually have him to thank for the resilient American apple varieties today. They say that the original trees brought from England by settlers didn't do very well in the American soil, but by his constant planting of trees from seed, it allowed nature to kind of develop these hardy varieties that thrived in the American climate. I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah, I stumbled across that in one of the articles I was reading, and I thought that's so fascinating that they needed some time to, you know, pollinate and diversify and and settle in to this climate before they could really get into the grafting and stuff for the nice fruit that we have today. So as you enjoy an apple pie this autumn or slice a fresh apple for a snack, think of how that red delicious might be descended from one of Johnny Appleseed's trees. Time for our bookworm review. Answering a woman's desperate call for help, young Navy widow Helen DeVries opens her Whitby Island home as a refuge to Troy and he. As they bond over common losses and a delicate, potentially devastating secret, their relationship spans the remainder of their lives. After losing her mother, Cassidy Quinn spent her childhood summers with her grand, Helen, at her farmhouse. Nourished by her grandmother's love and encouragement, Cassidy discovers a passion that she hopes will bloom into a career. But after Helen passes, Cassidy learns that her home and garden have fallen into serious disrepair. Worse, a looming tax debt threatens her inheritance. Facing the loss of her legacy and in need of allies and ideas, Cassidy reaches out to Nick, her former love, despite the complicated emotions brought by having him back in her life. Cassidy inherits not only the family home, but a task spoken with her grandmother's final breath. Ask Grace Kim, Yuli's granddaughter, to help sort through the contents of the locked hope chest in the attic. As she and Grace dig into the past, they unearth their grandmother's long-held secret and more. Each startling revelation reshapes their understanding of their grandmothers and ultimately inspires the courage to take risks and make changes to own their lives. Set in both modern day and mid-century Whidbey Island, Washington, this dual narrative story of four women, grandmothers, and granddaughters intertwines across generations to explore the secrets we keep, the love we pass down, and the heirlooms we inherit from a well-lived life. Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell, bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me at my website, www.authorangelabell.com. I picked up Heirlooms by Sandra Bird on a whim. I'd never read her work before, and I hadn't heard anything about this latest release. With no preconceived notions or expectations, I read the opening lines and was immediately transported to the 1950s by historical details that evoked nostalgia for a time I'd never experienced. Then the characters stepped onto the page, diverse, endearing, complex, and the story seemed to shift from black and white to brilliant technicolor. As the daughter of a former special education teacher, I was particularly touched by the thoughtful and heartfelt depiction of characters with autism and Down syndrome. Heirlooms is a story of friendship, a story of family and legacy, one with rich spiritual themes. More than once, I was moved to tears by poignant scenes of grief where the characters were allowed to ask tough questions and weren't given blithe answers. Instead, Bird 
digs deep into the heart of her character's pain, sorting through the soil of raw emotion and planting roots of truth so they can grow and reemerge into the sunlight with newfound beauty and hope. If you're a fan of women's fiction and dual-time narratives, you're sure to agree that Heirlooms is a beautiful bouquet of a book. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.